I have educated extensively about the COVID vaccine, which a lot of people on social media mistake for quote unquote me pushing the vaccine. I do not push the vaccine. I have never once said everyone should get the vaccine, nor have I ever said no one should get the vaccine. What I have done and what the right approach to do is provide as much information as we can about what we do and what we don't know mm-hmm. so that the individual can make the best decision for them. Hi, I'm Sarah Kuhn. Welcome to the Juno Women Podcast, where I sit down for candid conversations with women who are experts in their field and share their specific knowledge so that we can become better equipped to handle all things motherhood. Juna Women is an extension of Juna, a fitness and nutrition app created to help guide you through your trying to conceive, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. Everything we do at Juna is designed to empower and support you through one of the most incredible and challenging times of your life. On today's episode, I'm talking with Shannon Clark, OBGYN and a professor of maternal fetal medicine who specializes in high-risk pregnancies. Shannon has spent the past year studying the correlation between COVID-19 and pregnancy. In this episode, we discuss the impact of COVID and the vaccine on fertility, and then we jump into pregnancy and lactating individuals. This episode is meant to inform and educate, but ultimately, this is a conversation that you should be having with your own care provider. I hope you find this helpful as you navigate through your decisions with the COVID vaccine. Shannon, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Do you mind introducing yourself and just telling us a little bit about you and your area of expertise? I am uh, Shannon Clark. I am a professor in maternal fetal medicine. Um, That means I did four years of an obstetrics gynecology residency, followed by an additional three years to subspecialize in maternal fetal medicine. And that's where all of my patients are pregnant and have high-risk pregnancies for whatever reason, whether it be maternal and or a fetal reason. So I am a professor in a large academic center where I have roles as a clinician, educator, and researcher. And then I do a lot of education on social media on the side where I specifically, other than the past year, which has been dedicated to COVID education, but Mm -hmm. really babies after 35, fertility, Uh, All things fertility, pregnancy, motherhood, parenthood related to those who are conceiving after 35. And you yourself have twins, right? That's right. I do. Yeah. And we're actually on a, yeah, they're four and a half. We're we're on a little staycation. So you might hear them running around here, but yeah. Uh, Yeah. They're four and a half. And I did conceive them after several failed cycles of IVF. I went to donor egg and was able to conceive them via donor egg. Oh, incredible. I have a four and a half year old. That's my, mm-hmm. as my oldest. And I'll mm-hmm. tell you, man. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It's You've a got lot. your hands yeah. full. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I had, my husband's very hands-on, which is great. And I have great help with our uh, childcare. So I, I cannot complain. Oh, that's, yeah. that's, good. that's the name of the game, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. I, th- this could go in a million different directions, but sure. as you mentioned, you have kind of specialized in COVID education in the last year. And that's what I want to yeah. talk about today. So actually let's start at the beginning. Cause I think there's sure. been a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. being spread about the impact of the COVID vaccine and fertility. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Sure. So yeah, and uh, this has been months in the making, but I'd be happy to go over it again because it it does need to be addressed pretty much daily at this point. Yes. But basically what happened is right when, right after the EUA came out for Pfizer as an MNR, as the first mRNA vaccine to be available in the United States, there was a blog, I think it was called Health and Money News. And it was by two two people who are not in obstetrics or fertility. I, I don't know what their backgrounds were. But essentially what they were saying is the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2, 
or the COVID virus is the, what's, what the vaccine is targeting. So the mRNA vaccine from the Pfizer and Moderna is prompting our body or our host cells to produce the spike protein, in which case, once it's produced, our ant antibodies are developed against that. So that if we are ever exposed to the spike protein again through COVID infection, our immune system would work by hosting the antibody response and to combat that that potential exposure. That's how these vaccines are working. They were saying that the spike protein, which proteins are made of amino acids, all proteins in our body are made of amino acids. They were saying that the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 was very similar uh, in amino acid sequence to a placental protein. This placental protein is called syncytin-1. And basically it's in the trophoblast layer of the placenta. And what it does is it helps implantation of the placenta and establishes circulation between the mother and the placenta and thus the, the fetus. So what they were saying in this, and it was actually very, in my opinion, as a medical professional, very inflammatory because they didn't provide any scientific evidence about why this could happen. Mm -hmm. They were saying that essentially if you were to get the vaccine, the spike protein, where our, our bodies are formulating antibodies against the spike protein, that because they have similar amino acid sequence, it's going to target this placental protein as well, which would lead to uh, miscarriage and or pregnancy loss. Since then, multiple fertility specialists, and then also uh, an excellent article in Fertility and Sterility, which is put out by ASRM or the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, put out a great article that said, this is biologically implausible, meaning it just does not make sense. Mm -hmm. The homology or the sameness, if you will, between the spike protein amino acid sequences of the SARS-CoV-2 and the amino acid sequence of this placental protein is simply not there. And it's not going to happen. So basically that article was retracted no longer even available. Those people disappeared. However, this is how many months later, and I'm still getting asked about it. And not just me, anybody that educates on the COVID vaccine is getting asked about it right. because it's a very sensitive topic and, and I get it. But once it's uh, as a medical professional, we think it was one blog, not even scientifically based <laughs> and we're still fighting it. What the heck? But yeah, I, I get it. I get it. And that's why I have no problem answering this question over and over again and addressing it over and over again, because people need that. I going through infertility myself. I get it. it just shows you the power of one piece of false information. Yep. Oh my God. Thanks. All it takes. It's funny. Yep. My, when I, I think what ends up happening is I'm not, let's say I'm not in the I'm not trying to conceive, but I hear from someone that like, oh, it hurts fertility. So I don't dig into it. I'm just like, okay. Yeah. But now I'm like, oh, now I'm ready to have a baby, but I shouldn't get the vaccine because yep. I had heard yep. that it impacts fertility. And then yep. that's, that's it. And I feel like that's yep. what it, it just snowballs. So yeah, they met many of these myths or blatant false pieces of information are, are largely contribute to what we call vaccine hesitancy. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the average person who doesn't have a medical background or doesn't know how to go in and do a scholarly Google search, if you will, right. to find that data, it, it, I understand how it's still around, but it doesn't help either when people keep perpetuating it and without any explanation. So that's where we, we come in, people such as myself who are medical professionals and are willing to keep Fighting the good fight. Mm -hmm. We'll keep fighting the fight. Yeah. <laughs> so we will underscore it simply. It does not impact for it. It does not impact for it. As a matter of fact, and I, this article just came out today. I just put it on my, about ovarian follicular function. I just put it in my Instagram stories and it's another confirmation that we don't have any concern that the COVID vaccine is going to affect fertility. Perfect. I'm going to link mm -hmm. to it. In our yeah. Stories. Yeah. It's in my stories. You can get it. Yeah.
Okay, perfect. So while we're talking about fertility, because I think like a year ago, everyone was like, let's take a beat on family planning. Like it's probably not the best time to think about getting pregnant Mm -hmm. because like we just didn't know much about it. Is like, what's your advice now for women who are wanting to get pregnant? It's an individual decision. It's an individual decision. And I understand the hesitancy, but I also understand the urgency. Mm-hmm. When people have waited and now they're like, I, I, especially those who are over age 35 and especially over age 40, I get it. But I think you just have to weigh the risk and the benefits of a, if you were to get pregnant and you're, and you choose not to vaccinate and that's perfectly within anyone's right to do that. What are your chances of getting the infection in pregnancy versus if you wait, what's the potential pitfalls of waiting, especially if you're over age 35 or over age 40? It, it, it depends on what your personal timeline is. If you were to get COVID infection and you're pregnant, are you going to have aqua, uh, access to adequate prenatal care? Right now, it's not like it was a year ago. Mostly everybody is getting seen in person and we have, thankfully, people that are getting vaccinated. So it's not going to be to that degree. But you know, what if you have pre-existing medical conditions and you get pregnant? and you get COVID infection. There's things to think about. Those are all things that need to be addressed. And it's always helpful if you want, you can always get a preconception consult with an obstetrician or someone like myself to talk about these things because sometimes that does help because we can ask certain questions uh, or uh, if you're family planning, talking to a fertility specialist, especially if you're needing to go under fertility treatments. These are That's what we're here for is to help you make the best decision for you. Yes. I love that. I think like mm-hmm. a lot of people feel like right now their access to their OB or reproductive endocrinologist or someone mm-hmm. like you, like is more limited, but I feel like mm-hmm. it's not. <laughs> and- no, I don't think it is. I, I, and I do think the one good thing out of COVID is the, I wouldn't say perfection because it's, I don't know if it's ever going to be perfected, but the strides we made in telemedicine, there are a lot of things we can do with telemedicine. And a lot of us who never did it are doing it now. And yeah. these types of consults are perfect for that because you don't have an acute issue. You just need some counseling. You need somebody to walk you through this decision-making process. And that would be a great thing for a telemed visit with a fertility specialist or an, a maternal fetal medicine specialist like myself. And I'm sure that it wouldn't be too hard to find somebody who is able to do that. So that's always a, a potential thing that anybody can consider in that situation. Yeah. No, I love mm-hmm. that. Okay. So let's talk about COVID and pregnancy. What are, again, I think like the, there has been like, as new information comes out, we've died. I'm like, I said, cause I'm still like, I was pregnant. I'm like, I'm all over the place mm-hmm. here, but I was pregnant with my third baby during the pandemic, but I was like in my second trimester. And I feel like the information that I consumed was different. Now we know different stuff. So what mm-hmm. are the risks in each trimester? And like, you know, like, mm-hmm. am I, is miscarriage a bigger mm-hmm. issue? Yeah. I'll let you. Yeah. And so like, we, we don't have a stratification of if you're in the first trimester, these are your risks from COVID infection. Are you talking about COVID infection or COVID yes, vaccine? COVID, COVID infection. COVID infection. Let's yeah. talk about infection so, first. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have, I wish we did, but we don't have a table that says in first trimester, this is what you're at risk for second and third. That's not how it happens. This is what we do know in generalizations. We know that pregnant women uh, are at increased risk for severe disease based on the need for mechanical ventilation, increased risk of death in the pregnant patient compared with their non-pregnant counterparts. We also know that there's an increased risk for preterm labor. And depending on how early that delivery is, would directly affect the potential complications and risk for the neonate. And we also know there, and we're getting more reports about an increased risk of stillbirth in in pregnancies. Mm -hmm. There was a large multinational cohort of pregnant women that was studied 
with COVID infection that did show infection earlier in pregnancy does increase the risk for complications. But that's really the only one that uh, I have known of recently. But what uh, I think is the important thing to understand is that we know that pregnant individuals are at increased risk for severe infection. We don't have, again, the percentages by trimester, but we know, and it also depends on the luck of the draw, whether or not you don't necessarily have to have comorbidities to have severe infection. I've seen patients both ways, but we also know that people with uh, comorbidities and pregnancy have an even more increased risk. So that's something to consider. And I, I will also say that there were a couple of other studies that came out. One was in mid-March or so that kind of looked at the impact of COVID-19 on pregnancy outcomes. And this was actually a big meta-analysis of 42 studies that involved over 400,000 uh, people, pregnant people. And basically what they uh, showed was that COVID-19 infection was associated with preeclampsia, preterm birth, and stillbirth. We also know that symptomatic COVID infection was associated with an increased risk of cesarean delivery and preterm birth. And that's just because the sicker the mom is, the more likely that she's not going to be able to undergo vaginal delivery or induction of labor and cesarean delivery would be the safest. And the sicker they are, they might have to be delivered preterm. And then we also know that when compared with mild COVID infection, severe COVID infection is strongly associated with preeclampsia, preterm birth, uh, and low birth weight. And that's low birth weight is likely due to the preterm birth. We know that the, we have evidence that COVID infection affects the placenta, which could be a reason why we are seeing this increased risk of preeclampsia. Pre we're seeing these, starting to see these outcomes and all that put together could be considered what we call adverse pregnancy outcomes. So that's definitely something to consider. We know that COVID infection is not good for the pregnancy and I hear all the time. The risk is low. Yes, it is. The risk is low in it unless it occurs to you, it happens to you and it is happening. So that is something to consider. You can do a risk assessment based on the individual, um, but that's not an absolute. Uh, there, there are some people who are otherwise healthy that do have uh, severe COVID infection in pregnancy. So with that said, so it yeah. sounds like you like, let's try and avoid getting COVID, right? Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I had my way, I'd rather my patients <laughs> not get COVID. Yes. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about the Juna app, which is the app that makes this podcast possible. Juna is the only pregnancy and postpartum fitness and nutrition app with more than 200 pregnancy and postpartum safe workouts. The app also includes a key nutrient to focus on every week. For example, in week 16, Juna recommends vitamin C because vitamin C supports healthy lung development and it boosts immunity and it lowers the risk of developing preeclampsia. From there, we give you delicious recipes that help you get that exact nutrient in your life both quickly and easily. Juna also includes daily diaphragmatic breathing exercises as well as pelvic floor prep to keep things intact before and after labor. We also provide you daily tips to get you through each stage of your pregnancy and are constantly adding more to the experience. Lastly, every week there is a note from me that is relevant to the exact things you're experiencing. These are so helpful for easing any fears you may have as well as preventing gestational Google mania, the sickness where you can't stop Googling every little thing that happens during pregnancy. You can find the app by searching Juna in the iOS app store or visiting juna.co. And the best part is when you enter your due date or baby's birthday for postpartum, the app will automatically place you exactly where you're supposed to be. As a Juno Women podcast listener, we are offering you your first 30 days free. This deal is only available through our website. Go to juna.co, and when you get to the credit card page, use coupon code JUNAPOD, all in caps. Again, that is J-U-N-A-P-O-D, all in caps. Now, back to the show. So then let's talk about the COVID vaccine for pregnancy. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I have educated extensively about the COVID vaccine, which a lot of people on social media mistake for quote unquote me pushing the vaccine. I do not push the vaccine. I have never once said everyone should get the vaccine, nor have I ever said no one should get the vaccine. What I have done and what the right approach to do is provide as much information as we can about what we do and what we don't know Mm -hmm. so that the individual can make the best decision for them. And I just talked to someone earlier today about you got three types of pregnant patients. One that says, I've done my homework. I know I want to give me the shot. Sign me up. Okay. You're good. You don't need to talk about anything else. No, I'm good. All right. Fine. Mm-hmm. And you have the patient that comes in and says, no way, no hell. Do not come here. And no. And they completely don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to say you're going to sit down and you're going to, no, they're not my child. These are grown individuals. I'm not going to push any kind of counseling on them. If they already know they don't want the vaccine, they don't want the vaccine. Great but most people are gonna fall somewhere in between, okay? And that's where it's extremely important for the obstetrical care provider to be able to have a meaningful conversation with that individual about as much as we know about the COVID vaccine right now. And the first thing we know, and we have not studied the COVID vaccine in pregnancy, it's just now being studied formally in pregnancy. Great, we've already established that. But we know that, like I said, Pregnant individuals are at increased risk for severe infection. They're at increased risk if they've had infection for adverse pregnancy outcomes. We know that based on your social circumstance, and if you're at increased risk based on your social circumstance, do you live within a household of individuals who are going out into the public and are at increased risk? Are you at increased risk because of your job? Are you at increased risk because you're pregnant and you have other medical conditions that further place you at increased risk? So there's so many things that we can talk talk about to kind of weigh the risk and the benefits for you as an individual and whether or not getting that that vaccine is best for you. And a lot of times it just takes us talking about that to help make that decision. We also know, and it's great, we have some data from vSafe and VAERS on some of the pregnancy, some data on the safety of the vaccine in pregnancy. And that was put out by the ACIP on March 1st as a, from January until February 16th. And we should be getting an update soon, checking every day to see when that comes out. But we, ha- we, need some- we have seen no concerning trends in the vaccine as far as any concerning trends in pregnancy, which is very reassuring. And then, and we may talk about this later, another positive is what's going on right now with the J&J vaccine. We had six cases they were concerned about, and we could talk about later why they were concerned, but they were on it and they paused the vaccine. So that is showing you that they are taking the safety of the COVID vaccine extremely seriously. So that should be very reassuring, especially to pregnant individuals. So for me, when I saw that, I may not necessarily agree with it from a scientific standpoint, Mm -hmm. but I was like, you know what? They're really doing their job. So that made me feel better as a medical professional and as someone who takes care of pregnant individuals. It's there. Yes, there's a lot of unknown, but at the end of the day, the vaccine should be available to pregnant individuals and those that are lactating and those that are trying to conceive so they can make the best decision about them, about their healthcare. So that's why it is available to these individuals. Got it. And is there, Mm -hmm. when it comes to, and I'm, maybe I, maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but I'm hoping you do. Is there Mm -hmm. a particular like trimester that is Mm -hmm. more beneficial to get the vaccine in? Yeah. So this is a great question. People are, since we've gotten some of this data about the antibodies, People are comparing it to the Tdep vaccine and you're getting the Tdep vaccine in the third trimester. Why? Because that's the best chance at around 28 to 32 weeks or so. If you get the vaccine for the Tdep booster, that the antibodies cross the placenta, get to baby and help protect the baby from whooping cough or pertussis once it's born. 
We're not giving the Tdap booster to protect mom. We are doing it to protect baby. This is completely different than the COVID vaccine. Mm -hmm. The COVID vaccine is given primarily to protect mom. What we know now about the antibodies is just a bonus. If we don't have a protected mom, you're not going to have a protected pregnancy. So that's why there is no trimester specific recommendation on when to get the COVID vaccine. Now, if you are in the first trimester and you are at increased risk of exposure, get the vaccine. If you're not, because you don't live in a household with individuals that are going to increase your risk, or you don't work outside at home and you're able to socially distance and you're not getting exposed and your or your risk of exposure is low, then you may decide, may decide I want to wait till the second, I'm out of the first trimester and get into the second trimester. And that's fine too. But there's nothing, uh, we don't know any specific data that says you need to take it at this trimester versus this. And we don't know that, but we do know that it's to protect mom first and foremost. Got it. Now- mm-hmm. If let's say like the vaccine is now available to me and I'm in my third trimester mm-hmm. um, and I want to get the vaccine, does the vaccine cross the placental barrier to help my baby? Yeah. So the whole thing about getting vaccine the, with the vaccine in pregnancy is that we have, have studies where we have found the COVID specific antibodies in the cord blood. And if you have COVID specific antibodies in cord blood from after vaccination and pregnancy, then the baby does have those antibodies. Now, we don't know how protective those antibodies are for the neonate or how long they're protective, but the baby is getting antibodies to some degree. We just don't have that data yet, but it's very reassuring that we are seeing the antibodies in the poor blood. Yeah. To answer your question. Yeah, it does so that is reassuring. Questions. Yeah, it's reassuring. No one, because though this is in the, in the, in the vein of antibodies. So I'm a nursing mom and like, I obviously, I think I'm pretty sure that if I have, if I either, if I've had COVID or I've had the vaccine, I am producing antibodies. We're not sure if those are actually protective antibodies. If you've had COVID or, or the vaccine, I guess either one. So, okay. So each of my lactation, in, yeah, in lactation. Yeah. Okay. So in lactation. So yeah. So one thing we have seen is, and there was a recent study that showed that after vaccination during lactation, antibodies, COVID specific antibodies are found in breast milk. Now, the thing about antibodies in breast milk is this, the primarily responsible antibodies for passive immunity during breastfeeding in general are IgA antibodies. And the reason why those are important is because they can withstand whatever degradation might occur in the GI system of the neonate after consuming the breast milk, okay? This study showed that we have increased antibodies in breast milk, but they were primarily IgG antibodies. Now, the IgG mm-hmm. antibodies are what we specifically see when vaccinated vaccination occurs in pregnancy. So we don't know the significance of that. Does that mean these IgG antibodies are, are going to get broken down in the gut? because they're not IgA. Hmm. So we did see a little bit of an increase, but we also saw that the IgA antibodies are increased somewhat, but not as much as the IgA, the IgG. So we don't know the significance of that. But I will say, listen, it's not going to hurt getting vaccinated in pregnancy, or sorry, in lactation. The likelihood is that there are some antibodies getting to the baby. Again, we don't know how, if they get to the baby, how protected they are, they are or for how long. But at least the good thing is now you're vaccinated and you're not yes. going to pass on yes. yeah. That's <laughs> COVID the to your baby so again, mom. Exactly. Protecting mom, a protected mom protects baby, period. Yes. Yeah. That's which I feel like is that's enough for me. Exactly. Okay. So what are like some of the risks of getting the vaccine in your opinion? We do know the side effects and we do know that women in general um, have more side effects than males. And that's in non-pregnant. We don't, we do know that we don't really have the data about pregnancy and side effects just yet, but we can assume that pregnant or not that you're, you, 
you might be expect, experiencing more side effects, but those are the ones that you typically see with vaccines in general, fever, headache, chills, flu-like symptoms, myalgias, or, or muscle pain. So those are the main things. They have done studies on anaphylaxis in the general population, and the risk of anaphylaxis is actually really low, But I and there are no data on if you're in this trimester versus this, the side effects are increased by this. We don't have any of that. One of the things that I have heard is if I get in the first trimester, what do I do if I have a fever? If you have a fever, take Tylenol. It's not going to affect your response to the vaccine. Okay. So that's one thing to consider as well. If you do get the vaccine in the second, in the first trimester, but you can take Tylenol no matter when you get the vaccine, but you always worry uh, about having a high fever in the first trimester. I have not seen any reports that you're getting, people are getting a very high fever in general, but if you you know, do develop a low grade fever, you can take Tylenol in any trimester of pregnancy. Okay. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. All right. So they're not in general, not a lot of risks here to consider. Yeah. I mean, but again, we don't have the safety data. All we know is what we're seeing through V-Safe and theirs and that ACIP came out on March 1st with with some great tables and you could put, you should put that in a link in your um, notes as well to have access to that because that kind of breaks everything down as far as what, what side effects are being experienced. Perfect. I will do that. Okay. So the last thing I wanted to talk about is the J&J vaccine. Because so uh, yeah, just if you want to talk a little bit about the difference between the J&J vaccine and then what happened. What do you mean? Like the differences in as far? Because it's it's not an mRNA. It's a live vaccine. Right, right. Yeah. So do you, okay. So let's t- talk about mRNA. So Pfizer and Moderna are mRNA vaccines. How do they work? mRNA, it gives the, it's called messenger RNA. It codes for the spike protein for the uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the vaccine. So basically what they did is they took the message from the messenger RNA, made it into messenger RNA for the spike protein. They put it in a lipid bubble. That's where the vaccine comes from. It gets injected into the body's host cells in the immediate area where it receives the vaccine, takes in that mRNA, not into the nucleus of the cell. That's where the DNA is. That's not where the mRNA goes. Your DNA is not altered, but it goes into the other aspects of the cell that makes the body produce the spike protein. Once the body sees that spike protein, it's, yo, that's not my body. I'm going to produce antibodies to get rid of it. So then that's where the immune response comes in. And that's how vaccines work. Your body says, I don't like this spike protein. I'm going to develop antibodies to the spike protein. Then it happens. And then if you get exposed to the the SARS-CoV-2 in the future, that's exactly what happens. Your antibody response now knows what it looks like. And as soon as it sees it, it's going to attack. So that's an mRNA vaccine. The J&J vaccine and also AstraZeneca AstraZeneca vaccine in Europe, I'm not going to belabor that because it's not here in the U.S. But the J&J vaccine is an adenovirus vector. So basically, there are several viruses that we have used since the 1970s called viral vectors. They have been altered a little bit to where they're not causing active disease and some of the examples that have been using, used for viral vectors vaccines would be the adenovirus, which is what the J and I think measles was used as one. And then there's uh, vaccinia is another virus. So they use these viruses, they alter them a little bit, but they make it to where these viruses code for the spike protein. So the adenovirus also codes for the spike protein. So the adenovirus gets injected into your body. It too codes for the spike protein the same way the mRNA does. It's just put into your body in a different way. Then your antibodies are made, and then that's how the vaccine works. So that's the difference basically between the mRNA vaccine, Pfizer and Moderna, and the J&J vaccine, which is an adenoviral vector uh, vaccine. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And does that have anything to do with the way, with the, what it was, so I think six people got... <laughs> 
had like deep, was it DPT? Is that? No. Okay. So basically what happened with the, um, the J&J vaccine. So between, I think it was March 19th and April 12th or something like that, was somewhere around there. They saw that six individuals developed cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is a blood clot in the venous sinus system of the brain, along with low platelets. So a CVST does happen, but it usually happens alone. It doesn't usually happen with low platelets because those are contradictory. You have a clot from the CVS in the CVST, and then you have low platelets, which are anti-clotting, if that makes sense. So that was, that combination is very unusual, very, very rare, but also very unusual. So when you saw six people getting it after the vaccine, that was what the red flag was. And then Mm. they were all in women. Okay. Now those are six cases. They all had the CVST plus low platelets. In the Moderna trial, there were three CVST cases, but it was not with low platelets. Those platelets were normal. That's why it did not get flagged because the risk of that was still below the general population risk. So even though this is very rare, because it happened in six people in one with one vaccine and not compared to the other three, other two, that's what caused the red flag. And again, it's out of, a, out of an abundance of caution because this combination is very rare in general, but they did the right thing because they need to look at, make sure there's no other cases, mm-hmm. try to see if there's any other cases anywhere else. They need to try to figure out if it's just women, why? Okay. So you need to look right. at that to see if there need to be any other recommendations uh, regarding the vaccine, if and when they unpause it, if you will. They're doing their job and they're doing their due diligence to look into this and see if they can find any trends or any other information regarding this particular combination of the CVST plus the low platelets with the J&J vaccine. Got it. And it was six out of 6 million, right? Yeah. 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 So six out of 6 million, but you also have to, if you break it down, that was six out of 6.8 million cases, but that's all comers, meaning all right. individuals. Right, but then you, if you break it down, these cases were six cases in women aged 20 to 50, or I think it was 18 to 48, maybe 18 to 48. So then you break it down even further. So that breaks it down. It makes it a little bit more concerning when you look right. at it in women only in that age group. Does that make okay. sense? Yep. Totally. So that's when the statistics increased more. Uh, and that's another reason why they decided to put it on pause. And the last question about, were any of them pregnant? No, okay. none were pregnant or, or, um, None were pregnant or postpartum. Okay. Got it. And what do you think that, what will it take on the research side to then say, okay, we're going to like unpause J&J? This is one of the things where I wish uh, I knew more about vaccinations. I know enough to read what's out there and make an educated decision, a guesstimate. I don't know because we've never been in this situation before because it is still under an EUA. It's not been FDA approved. Right. So I don't know what it's going to take. I think they need to try what they're probably trying to do first and foremost is look for any other cases. They have to do that first and foremost. Then they need to look at whatever cases they can find and see if there's any patterns of risk factors. What if they do it and it's all in females, then that's going to be another thing to explore. They may, on the other hand, look and find other cases and see that it's not just in females and which would change things. So I think it's going to depend on what they find during this investigation process. Yeah. Now I just, I have a number of friends who have just gotten the J&J vaccine Mm -hmm. who are obviously like see these headlines and get really nervous. So do you have any, any thoughts for those people who are still in that? Yeah. It's a two to three, they're telling you within two to three weeks to watch for signs of headache and things like that. Listen, if it was me, I'd be concerned too, even though Mm -hmm. the risk is so small, the risk is so small, but I understand because when something like this happens, it contributes to the vaccine hesitancy. It does. 
Yes. Yep. And I can't necessarily say it shouldn't because I, if I take my, not my, my medical hat off, I can understand that. But again, I will reiterate that the risk is still very low. And I think it should give people some confidence, if anything, in how the system is working for the safety of these vaccines, which I think is a silver lining in all this. I do think it will be unpaused probably without, uh, after this other 10 days, but that remains to be seen. But yeah, I think that if anybody has any concerns that it's okay to call your provider and talk to them about it. If your provider can't give you answers or have what I call a meaningful conversation with you, then you got to find uh, somebody else that can, because you do want some reassurance from whoever's taking care of you. Totally. I, yeah, I think like mm -hmm. to all of this, like these are all questions that you should be able to ask your provider and feel comfortable that you're getting. Well, <laughs> that you're getting information. Listen, we have a duty as medical care professionals healthcare professionals to stay up to date on this. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of work. Trust me. I'm looking every day, but I'm making a conscientious effort. And we all should be because we have to be able to have these conversations with our patients, no matter who they are. Yep. Um, so it does take work. So if you find that your provider is not able to have those conversations with you, then that might be concerning to me. Totally. Well, Shannon, thank you so much mm -hmm. for taking the time to help us decode all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. That's all for today. If you liked today's episode, please share it with a mama friend and leave us a review. If you're pregnant, postpartum, or trying to conceive, you can download the Juna app completely free for seven days. The app is available for iOS and Android and is designed to be your guide for all things health and fitness for this very special time of your life. If you have any suggestions for episodes you would like to hear or anyone you think would be a great guest on the show, please email me directly at sarah at Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week.